Uh, well, today, uh, the handout that you should have uh, should say, Meet Your King, Part 1. Raise your hand if you do not have that worksheet. We have some over here in the West Wing. <clears throat> Meet Your King, Part 1. For the next couple of weeks, we're going to be getting reacquainted, or for some, acquainted for the first time, uh, with our great and holy King, the King of Kings, uh, King Jesus. And so... Uh, that will be the focus of our time together. In preparation then for that, let's go ahead and ask the Lord's blessing on our time, shall we? Father, thank you that we can come here and worship you as your people, uh, that we are the people of a great and holy king, the king of kings. We're thankful for that. We're thankful for his blood and for his life that were given to us for uh, not only the forgiveness of sins, but to be an example for us in the way that we live. And as we now take the time to discover some of what that means, the example, I pray that you would press it upon our hearts, the need to live and to be like our King. We pray this in his most precious name. Amen. Well, if you will... Uh, Direct your eyes to the top of the handout there and follow along as I read. Jesus was the perfect man. But what kind of man or human was he? What things did he care about? What things did he not care about? Where or with whom did he spend his time? How did he respond or react to others? How did he come across to others? How did people view his words or the way he spoke? Our investigation into the human person of Jesus has as its purpose not simply the gaining of knowledge, but more importantly, its application through imitation. We are commanded in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 1 to imitate our king, to model, in other words, our lives after his life, our actions, our responses after his actions and responses. The reason, because imitation is the greatest expression of worship and adoration or love. In other words, we show our loyalty to Jesus best by our imitation of his humanity. It is in this way also that we imitate and show loyalty to God since through the humanity of Jesus, he perfectly pictured or explained to us the character of God. And that is uh, what we're told in places like John 1 verse 18. That Jesus, uh, through his uh, humanity, or by putting on flesh, he has explained or perfectly pictured for us, the term in Greek is uh, the term that we get uh, the word exegesis from, he exegeted for us God, he explained through his human life uh, what God is like. And so again, that is uh, the purpose or the goal of our time, to learn exactly who our king is or how uh, he behaved as a human person. 
And as we understand that, to then take that upon ourselves in application, to begin imitating him, and in this way, lose ourselves. Remember, that is the, uh, the part of this life that we are to be crucifying, self. We are not to be uh, discovering self or becoming more embedded or entrenched into self. Rather, we are to be dying to self. And we are to put in its place, as Paul says in Romans, we are to put in its place or to be clothed with instead the person of Jesus Christ. Which means that we are to be imitating him. But again, the only way to do that is to first learn what he was like. And so uh, for the next couple of weeks, we're going to do that. We're going to learn about who the person of Jesus is and was during his uh, earthly life. Who is Jesus as a human? So to begin with then, as a human, King Jesus, number one, was careful to receive or act on anything as truth that could not be sufficiently supported in God's court of law. And I believe that's the piece that you're filling out. King Jesus was careful to receive or act on anything as truth that could not be sufficiently supported in God's court of law. God's court of law. Again, God's court of law. King Jesus was careful to receive, and think about my words here, to receive as well as act on anything as truth. So receiving it from others, what other people said, he didn't just take it as truth because they said it, or to act on something as though it were truth, unless again it could be sufficiently supported in God's court of law. Some examples, Matthew 19 is the first. Matthew uh, chapter 19, and this is going to be our example as it relates to uh, the area of reception or receiving something as truth. Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 and 17. Uh, this is the account of the, uh, the rich young ruler. Matthew 19, verse 16, And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, meaning Jesus, said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. Notice Jesus picks up how uh, this particular individual uh, addresses him before answering the question uh, that this uh, young uh, person has asked of him, uh, what must I do to have eternal life? Uh, Jesus again picks up on that first uh, piece about uh, being good, or why do you ask me about uh, good? How do you know that I know that, in other words? Why are you assuming that I know such things? And so Jesus doesn't just receive from this particular individual uh, what this individual is projecting upon him, which is that Jesus somehow knows these things. We see this in other places. People coming to Jesus and saying, uh, we know that you are good or that you do all things in relation to God. 
And here, Jesus, we find him questioning that, not because uh, he didn't believe that about himself, but rather questioning it as it related to what this man is saying. Why does he believe that? On what basis does he know this to be true? And so here we see just what I've put here uh, for you in this first point. He was careful to receive anything as truth. Just because this man says that Jesus is good or knows what is good, doesn't make it true. How often do we as individuals take the words of others as truth, receive the words of others as true, even though they or we may not possess the evidence, sufficient evidence, to prove it? You see, Jesus was careful that way. And so again, he asks of this man the question, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. And of course, who he's speaking about is uh, God. And so uh, essentially what Jesus is uh, asking the man or uh, the question that Jesus is now opposing to this man who has asked him the question is, how do you know that I'm God? Or what would make you think that I'm God? There is only one who is good. Why do you think I'm him? So carefulness in what he received is truth. Carefulness as it related to acting on anything as truth. Uh, John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Starting in verse 2, early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. So notice there, they're charging this particular woman with adultery, a capital crime. Verse 5, now in the law of Moses, or Moses rather, in the law commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They said this to test him that they might have something or have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. What is it that they want to charge against him? Well, most likely what it's talking about here is if Jesus told them that it was okay to stone them, they could go then to the authorities, the Roman authorities who are now over them, and say this man is condoning that... uh, that we take the law into our own hands. Under Roman rule, the Jews were not allowed to carry out a punishment for capital crimes, and so they're trying to catch Jesus here. Jesus, however, responds, verse 7, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground, when they heard it, they went away by, uh, one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. I think verse 11 makes it clear that Jesus knew that she was indeed guilty of the crimes or the crime that they were accusing her of, the act of adultery, verse 4. 
These uh, words here, go and sin no more, are similar to what Jesus says to uh, the man by the pool of Bethsaida in John 5, uh, that he heals there and he says uh, these words, go and sin no more, otherwise something worse will happen to you. Implying that the, the reason that this man was uh, crippled, or paralyzed, was due to his sin. Uh, Jesus uh, seems to be implying here that uh, this is true. She was guilty of this particular crime. The problem was... None of the individuals who were accusing her had the evidence, sufficient evidence, to prove it. And I believe that uh, the two times that we're told here, uh, verse uh, 6 and verse 8, that he writes on the ground, that is indeed what he was writing on the ground. As they brought this particular charge and uh, continued to tell Jesus uh, Uh, what the punishment was for that particular crime, uh, Jesus knelt down and began to write the piece that they were missing, and that was uh, on the evidence, according to Deuteronomy, uh, Deuteronomy 17, only on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall the accused be put to death. That, I believe, again, is what Jesus is doing here as he writes on the ground, and even in his response here by saying, Uh, He who is without sin, you be the first to throw a stone at her. The law also said that those bringing the accusations couldn't also be those who were accomplices to the crime. And that's Jesus' point there. The individuals knew that she was guilty of adultery because they were the ones committing adultery with her. And so Jesus, even though he is God, even though he knew, verse 11 again, that she was indeed guilty of this particular crime, follows the law. He does not receive or act on anything as truth without the supporting or sufficient evidence. We see this also in John 5 where Jesus mentions this very thing. The two or three witnesses in relation to himself and says, no one, no one is justified without it. Paraphrasing, of course. What are two or three witnesses? Well, or what I'm saying here, uh, sufficient evidence. Uh, Sufficient evidence by definition, biblical uh, definition, is evidence that agrees with Scripture. Again, we see this in John 5, Jesus using the Scripture as part of his evidence as it relates to himself or his testimony about himself. Evidence that agrees with Scripture and uh, to use uh, our, uh, our system of justice here in this country, to use some of the language or to borrow from them, and is beyond a reasonable doubt. That's sufficient evidence. Evidence that agrees with Scripture and is beyond a reasonable doubt. In other words, no other reasonable explanation can be given. That's sufficient evidence. Or that's what it means to have sufficient evidence or your two or three witnesses. Evidence that agrees with Scripture and is beyond a reasonable doubt. Again, no other reasonable explanation can be given. That's the way Jesus operated. 
He was careful to receive or to act on anything as truth that couldn't be sufficiently supported, that did not possess sufficient evidence, that couldn't be, again, uh, sufficiently supported in God's court of law. And beloved, that's the way that we are to think about things in relation to others, in our judgment of others, and the accusations we may uh, be tempted to bring against others. If necessary, could you sufficiently support those accusation, uh, accusations in God's court of law? Which means this, agreement with Scripture and, and again, beyond a reasonable doubt. No other reasonable explanation can be given. If that's not the case, then like Jesus... You respond the way he did to this woman. Where are your accusers? Where are they? Has no one condemned you? Neither do I condemn you. Even though Jesus knew she was guilty, he says the evidence is not there. It doesn't mean that uh, the evidence won't be there on judgment day. But as it related to that particular situation there in time-space history, at that particular moment, neither do I condemn you. The evidence isn't there. Nobody's brought the evidence to bear. No judgment. No condemnation. By the way, this is, uh, this is something that God requires of us, and if we don't give it, uh, we are considered to be guilty anytime we make an accusation without it. Guilty of standing in judgment or condemning God and his court or his law. James chapter 4, James chapter 4 and James chapter 5 uh, speak this way. James chapter 4 verse 11, do not speak evil against one another. Literally, do not condemn one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother who, or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. And the, the, the way that you speak evil against your brother, you, you, you judge them unjustly, is by bringing judgment without the sufficient evidence. That's what Scripture teaches us. If you do that, again, James says, uh, you condemn or you uh, judge unrighteously the law and its judges. You say, we don't need to do it God's way. That's essentially what you're doing, and that's what James is telling us here. You've established your own law and your own court for judging people, which doesn't require what God and his law court says is required. That's what you're guilty of. But if you judge the law, he goes on to say, but if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. You can't consider yourself someone who's obedient to God and his law if that's what you're doing in relation to other people. You're judging people without sufficient evidence. Verse 12, there is only one lawgiver and judge, that being God. In other words, there's only one way to do it, and that's his way. He who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Meaning, who are you to establish your own system of judgment if you're not using, in other words, his established system of judgment? 
We see similar words in verse 9 of chapter 5. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. The idea here of grumbling is, again, this idea of uh, judging, making accusations against your brothers. And when you do that, you now stand in judgment, unless that judgment comes with sufficient evidence. And he says, the judge, the only judge and lawgiver, is ready. He's standing at the door waiting to judge you, to condemn you every time you do that. Every time you judge others in that way. Every time you are not careful. You are not like Jesus. You do not imitate Jesus in acting on things as though they are truth when they cannot be supported. In God's court of law. Matthew uh, chapter 18 verses 15 and 16 uh, gives us uh, there uh, in Jesus' words the instruction for the new covenant community which is uh, the exact uh, same instruction that's given to the old covenant community uh, about bringing the two or three witnesses when we confront others. And that doesn't mean literal people necessarily. It means against sufficient evidence which could be people. Scripture, sufficient evidence, what we're taught there or the principle that is established in Matthew 18, 15, and 16 is that sufficient evidence eliminates sinful presumption or assumption. Sufficient evidence eliminates sinful presumption or assumption. Technically, the, the, the right word there is, a, is assumption, but I, I, I have included also the word presumption there because for whatever reason in the, uh, the ESV, and I'm not sure as it relates to other translations, but as it relates to the ESV, uh, the term that is used uh, is not assumption, uh, but presumption. And uh, that technically is uh, the wrong term. Both of those terms refer to something that you believe to be true. Uh, presumption, uh, in distinction from assumption, uh, is something you believe to be true based on reasonable evidence. Whereas assumption is something that is believed without such evidence. And so, uh, for example, uh, Jude chapter 1. Uh, Jude chapter 1, where we see this uh, term uh, being used, uh, Jude chapter 1, and it's uh, being used in a condemning way. Uh, the term or the, the word in Greek is uh, translated here as, uh, is translated as, <clears throat> excuse me, as, as presumption. Uh, let me find it. Here it is, verse 9. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, uh, he did not presumed to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. He did not presume. That word, I believe, should be assume. He didn't act like he knew what he didn't know, what he didn't have sufficient evidence to support. Who is it speaking about here? It's speaking about Michael, again, in contention or in argument with the devil, the, the, the dispute that they were having, as we're told here again, is over the body of Moses, who in the previous verse is identified, or the reason he's being brought up is, is an example of a, a glorious one. 
a leader in the covenant community or a former leader in the covenant community. And uh, this dispute, which uh, it's unclear as to what the exact uh, dispute was over. Uh, nonetheless, uh, he does not presume. Michael uh, does not presume to know what he doesn't know. Whereas Satan, or the devil, uh, is. Satan is presuming to know and is judging based on an assumption. Here translated again, uh, the term uh, presume. What again does that refer to? Well, it's judgment, again, without uh, reasonable evidence or sufficient evidence. Because really the part that, is, uh, that needs to be reasonable is as it relates to uh, doubt. It needs to be beyond a reasonable doubt. The evidence that you present is beyond a reasonable doubt, meaning the proof as to what you are proposing as truth. There is no other reasonable explanation that can be given. And that, of course, comes also in agreement uh, with Scripture. So here's what happens beyond uh, just you uh, being in sin when you uh, judge or accuse in that way. Uh, Not only are you, uh, like I said, in sin or you're condemning the law and the lawgiver, but you are also like Satan, You are imitating Satan, not Jesus, when you do that. Uh, So important, not just for the people of God, in our imitation of Jesus, to be careful in this way then, uh, but most important for uh, those who serve as his leaders, elders in the church, uh, that we don't assume The unfortunate thing about our culture, I can't speak to any other culture because I haven't lived in any other culture, but the unfortunate thing about our culture is that people don't listen to the words that are spoken to them. And so when people hear things, not only do they not retain what is spoken to them, so the intel oftentimes is uh, fractured or it's bad, uh, but they listen for buzzwords only. And so they don't listen to those words within their particular context, the words that are surrounding them, modifying them, or telling us how to use or how those particular words are being used. Rather, they hear specific words, and then they, uh, at that point, they blank out everything and just go off on certain assumptions attached to that particular buzzword. It happens all the time. As a matter of fact, that, I would say, is the the biggest... uh, uh, problem within humanity in our culture is we don't listen and we spend a lot of time instead assuming because of certain words that we heard in a sentence communicated to us or in the what was communicated we hear a word and we go oh i know what they're talking about and then everything else after that is just wah 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 because i'm over here in my mind and i've created whole universes of meaning because of one word that was said. That's assumption. And and, uh, it often has very uh, destructive results. How do I know that? Well, because for two decades now, I've been counseling people who are a part of our culture, and I would say better, I know, better than our culture, and yet this is our number one problem. Constantly assuming and uh, making judgments or accusations against others in the body of Christ 
based on assumptions. Rather than listening, truly listening and asking questions. And like Jesus, in imitation of Jesus, of our Lord. Being careful. Being careful to act on anything that we couldn't support in God's court of law. And so this is the way to think of it. I tell my wife this all the time. If you're going to make an accusation about anything at all, then you need to be ready to make that accusation before Judco. So that, that's how confident you need to be. So confident that you would be willing to come before the congregation and say, here's my evidence for why I say X is true. And if you don't feel that your evidence is sufficient to do that, then you shouldn't make the accusation. We need to be careful to receive. That means what we receive from others, what we hear, to receive or act on anything as truth that cannot be sufficiently supported in God's court of law. This is our king. This is how he operated during his earthly life. And he operated that way, again, as our example. How we are to be operating with one another. Number two, Jesus did not care about the evil going on in the government. Jesus did not care about the evil going on in the government, only the evil going on in the covenant community. Jesus did not care about the evil going on in the government. I think that was the the slot there that I gave to you to fill in. He didn't care about the evil going on in the government, only the evil going on in the covenant community. Very easy to get caught up in all of the evil going on in the government. First of all, it's what you should expect. All human uh, governments, meaning governments uh, of the world or secular governments, uh, will be corrupt or evil. It's been that way since the fall. And it's no different just because we live in America. And there's no way to change that. Fox News is not your savior. The Republican Party is not your savior. The Constitution is not your savior. Anybody you, that you think is your savior in that realm or who believes that the propaganda that is touted in those places is just as evil and wicked and fallen as the people on the other side. And so uh, you're putting your trust in, a, all you're doing is putting your trust in a different devil. And so Jesus had no hope for human governments and he didn't care anything about them or what they were doing. The only evil that he was concerned with, meaning the only evil that he concerned himself with, with changing, was evil in the covenant community. Which means the same should be true for us. And again, very easy to get caught up because we all have TVs or devices that are always sending us uh, news updates. And uh, we, get, uh, we, get, uh, we get entangled in that, don't we? We listen to that stuff and uh, it starts to 
cause certain emotions to well up inside of us and uh, uh, we think, i, I got to do something about this. Or we get anxious. People get anxious about this kind of stuff. Where the, where the world is going. The world's continuing to go in the same direction it's always gone. And it's never been anything different. Never. So if you're anxious now and you weren't before, it's just because you were clueless before. And now you're clued in. It's always been that way. And Jesus knew it was that way. And so he didn't care. Well, let me show you this from a few examples. Luke chapter 13. And hopefully... Guys, I hope you're getting this. Like, this isn't just something we do on Sunday and you're like, oh, that's great, I learned about Jesus today. And um, yeah, and then you go get home and you turn the boob tube on to Fox News and you stand there and go, (laughs) sucking it in. You are to be like Jesus if you want to get to heaven. And that means as you learn about Jesus, you, you change to become like Jesus in these ways. Luke chapter 13, Luke chapter 13, there were people in his day, just like uh, people are today, that were concerned uh, about these things, were more concerned about what was going on in the government around them rather than what was going on in the covenant community about changing things in the government rather than changing things in the covenant community. And by the way, those, (laughs) those things are not coextensive and one does not affect the other. Don't think that, well, if we change things in the government and we make our people more patriotic, we'll have better people in the church. When you look historically uh, at the church as to uh, when the church was uh, the strongest or the most healthy, you know when it was? When the world was the blackest or the darkest spiritually. So if anything, what we should be praying for is that things get worse out there because it makes it real clear how bright and good things are in here. Luke chapter 13, I said there were people in Jesus' day that, uh, that had these, uh, these problems, worrying about the government. Notice, there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Pilate, you remember, was a, was a governor over uh, Judea, over that particular Roman district, and, uh, and uh, this was the news of the day that Pilate had uh, taken some Gentile blood. And uh, he had taken that and he had corrupted uh, the Jews' uh, blood of sacrifice, meaning at the temple, uh, that he had taken their blood and he had mixed it or mingled it with their sacrifices. And you can just imagine, right? They got this on their their phone update, right? (laughs) Their Fox News app popped up. Pilate's mingled or corrupted the blood of the temple. And they're all up in arms. Notice that at very time, what do they do? Hey, Jesus, you've got to hear about this. And Jesus is like, that's why we've got the militia. The Jesus militia. We're meeting tonight. We've got a college that we've started. Right? Where we're going to teach you how to be uh, patriotic and how to change, uh, change Caesar. Right? Jesus hears about this and he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. No, he doesn't care. He, he, he doesn't even, he doesn't care. He's like, he's like, what does that matter? 
Let me talk about what does matter. You, you need to repent. Or like them, you're going to die too. The, 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 the summation of everything that he says here, you put the two together as this, is that the reason that bad things happen in the world is because the world is wicked. And if you don't stop being wicked, you're going to die like the world dies. In very nasty and rotten ways. Jesus here offers uh, his own uh, news. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. And you can just see these, uh, these people like, oh yeah, yeah. What'd you think about that? Do you think that they were worse offenders than all others who lived in Jerusalem, the holy city? The place, as the Old Testament says, of God's footstool? Jerusalem? Do you think that they were worse? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Jesus doesn't care at all what's going on in the world around him, the government, tragedy. What he cares about are the souls of his people, what's going on in the covenant community, which he continues to then speak about. Notice, immediately following addressing these two things, we read this in verse 6, and he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I found none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. Vineyard or a vine was a, or is rather a popular metaphor that is used in the Old Testament to refer to Israel. No doubt that is who Jesus is referring to here. He is referring to the covenant community. Again, his concern was not with what was going on in the world, how evil or corrupt the world was, and what the consequences for the people of God might be in light of that. No concern for that at all. Instead, it was, what will the consequences be for God's people if they continue to be evil in his covenant community? See, that's the real issue, beloved. It's not what's going on out here, but what's going on inside. You, you want to belly... Let me, let me just... I'm, I'm going I'm to be very open about this. Praise be to King Jesus that this week somebody revealed themselves as apostate and the body of Christ was purged of evil. You know why? Because I don't want to likewise perish. You see, that's, that's the aversion of tragedy in this body. I'm not concerned with COVID or what's going on in the world. I'm concerned about the health of this body, the stability of this body. And what causes instability and tragedy in this body is sin or the tolerance of evil in this body, not the world. And Jesus understood that. And so his concern... It's for the body of Christ, the covenant community, the church, not the world. He didn't care anything about the evil going on in the government. And if you have found yourself caught up in that stuff, before God, before your king right now, repent. Turn from it. Say to Jesus in your heart, I'm sorry, I see the light, I understand, and I'm changing. 
I'm going to imitate you in the way that I live my life, which means I'm not getting caught up in that stuff because it doesn't matter. That kind of thinking, the, the, the stuff that drives that, also drives then a, a, a disrespect from those or for those that Jesus has appointed in the world and that we are called to honor and even pay tribute to. You know the text, Luke 20, verses 20 through 25, where uh, uh, again, some of the Jews try to catch Jesus in something that they can take back to the Roman authorities. And uh, they say, what do, you, what do you have to say about paying tribute or honor to Caesar? Now, who is Caesar? Well, he was a king by force, a king through foreign invasion versus election or choice. And so uh, the Jews were under the oppression of the Romans, and under this king, and now uh, to add insult to injury, uh, we have uh, this particular king that they did not want over them, uh, requiring them to pay honor or tribute. And what does Jesus do? He says, let me see one of your coins. And he says, whose inscription is on it? Well, it was the inscription of Caesar. And he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. You pay tribute, you, you pay honor. Why? Because Romans 13 verses 1 through 7 says, all authority, even those in the world, have been established by God and we are to show them honor. Honor to whom honor is due, meaning to those offices of authority that exist because they exist and only exist by God, even evil authority. Daniel is uh, probably the perfect example of this. Uh, Daniel chapter uh, 6, I think it is here, Yes, Daniel chapter 6. So Daniel chapter 6, you have, uh, at this particular point, Nebuchadnezzar had Daniel thrown into the lion's den. It's the, it's the story that probably everybody, if anybody knows anything about Daniel, it's uh, in relation to this particular event, him being thrown into the lion's den. And, and God, of course, uh, protects him during that time. And uh, uh, the king comes uh, to him and uh, says, Oh, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve, continually been able to deliver you from the lion's then Daniel, here's the verse, verse 21. Think about how Daniel responds here. To, to a Babylonian pagan king. Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. O king, O king who threw me to the lions. O king, live forever. If you're watching Fox News and... Uh, you're listening to all of that evil, wicked propaganda, uh, you hardly are a person who would say to our current king, President Biden, O king, live forever. And yet that is exactly how we should be responding to whoever God puts in power. Which shows, at the end of the day, we really don't care. Because we understand that uh, though we belong to this kingdom and our king is Jesus, even the kings of this world are under our king. So our king here is in control of even those kings there. Which is why then we can honor them in those positions. We can honor them. This is uh, what we're called and uh, what every week we pray for. First Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. We pray for those in authority over us. Here's the question, though. Are we uh, just praying for them, or are we truly, uh, truly seeking their best? Where are our hearts or our attitudes? 
in relation to those who are over us. If you're watching Fox News, your heart is very much against those who are in authority over us. You can't stand that Trump lost. You can't stand that they're attempting to change the Constitution. You can't, cha- you can't stand that you live uh, in a wicked world. Why? You don't live in a wicked world. Not if you're a part of the church. We are but resident aliens here. Our home, our citizenship, according to Philippians 3, we saw it last week, is in heaven And this little outpost on earth that we call the church, uh, this is but the first taste of what we'll receive later when we go home to our king, who again even now is in control of even the wicked world around us. Why again are we worried? That should be of no concern. The only thing that should be concerned is that this little outpost is destroyed because we weren't concerned about it. And Jesus leaves which means that we're no longer the outpost. We're no longer the place that can save us and take us home. That leads me then to my third point. My third point, as a human, King Jesus had zero tolerance for sin in God's house. As a human, Jesus had zero tolerance for sin in God's house. Uh, Two times, uh, not one, but two times, uh, Jesus cleanses the temple. The first we read in John 2, early at the beginning of his ministry, verses 14 through 17. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Consume. He was consumed with the health of God's house. He was consumed with rectifying the bad situation in the covenant community, not the world. Consumed. He makes a whip of cords. Zero tolerance. Uh, I was telling somebody that uh, this this week. It's very easy to read something on a piece of paper like we're doing here. Uh, we read things about Jesus or we read things that we as humans are to do, uh, that God commands us to do. And uh, it's one thing to read it and it to be uh, what we might call theoretical. We read and say, oh yeah, that he did that. But what we need to do if we're truly to get or to grasp what is being said or communicated is try to imagine it. And when I say imagine it, I don't just mean the the visual aspect of it, but also what it would have felt like to be there. Jesus coming in and uh, making a whip of cords. And uh, Jesus now uh, beginning to whip people with that. I mean, imagine the violence, the sounds, people screaming, tables being overturned, Jesus yelling at people, a whip in his hand. What would it, what, how, how would have that, how would have that felt, how would have that been experienced by us to be there? Can you imagine? Pretty calm here right now, right? I don't stand up here every week with a whip, but what if I did? Probably change the experience a little bit, wouldn't it? 
This is what's happening here. And this is our Savior. This is our King. Zero tolerance. Zero tolerance for sin in God's house. I think that in, in, in many respects is an understatement. Zero tolerance when you see him making a whip of cords. Pouring out their money. What, what causes people to kill other people? What's the number one reason? Money. Jesus is pouring out their money. Their livelihood. He's destroying their livelihood. Matthew uh, chapter 21. Similar, uh, similar account uh, happens. But this time at the end of his ministry. He does it again. If once wasn't enough. He does it again. The question that I asked at the beginning, how do you think people viewed him? After just doing it the first time, how do you suppose people viewed him, those people, in the temple? How do you think those people viewed him after the second time? Probably after the first time, they wanted to kill him. By the second time, they made plans to kill him. And they killed him. Twice, Matthew 21, verses 12 and 13, we find Jesus again doing the same thing. He entered the temple and drove out all those who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Zero tolerance for sin. We see this in Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Revelation chapter 2, sorry, I'm in 21, uh, 2, 1, 1 through 5. Revelation chapter 2, this is the church uh, at Ephesus or in Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. Notice, by the way, all the good things that this particular church does. This, by the way, was the church where uh, Timothy uh, functioned as an interim pastor. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, where you have, therefore from where you have fallen, repent, And do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So put that all together. Just think about that for a moment here. This church had many acts of loyalty to Jesus. That's that's how I would put it, wouldn't you? Again, that's the first couple of verses there. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. You cannot bear those who do evil. You've tested others in this respect. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up. Persecution is most likely what he's talking about here. For my namesake, and you have not grown weary. But there's something amiss. Amiss. There's something wrong in the church. There's, there's, there's something that you are tolerating that's sin. You've, as he says here, you've lost the love you had at first. We're not told exactly what he means by that. We can speculate. Not important here. What is important is what Jesus says after that. 
I will come and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Uh, The lampstand represented the covenant community. More importantly, it represented Jesus' saving presence and power among them. That was the lampstand at least uh, in the first covenant community. In the old covenant community, that's what the lampstand uh, represented. God's covenant relationship with them, his saving presence and power uh, among them. And, uh, and no doubt that's how the particular term is being used here. And so what is Jesus saying? Uh, that one thing, even though you have all of these good things, though there are many acts of loyalty, it does not cause me to overlook those things that are sin. Sin in any area, no matter our intolerance in others will result in our lampstand being removed. Would you agree that that's uh, what is being communicated? It doesn't matter if there's tolerance of any sin. And again, we see this in the character or in the person of Jesus himself during his earthly ministry. Zero tolerance for sin in God's house. 1 Timothy chapter 3, interesting words. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, Paul writes this, I hope to come to you soon. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you. I can't come, and so I'm writing to you, and here's the reason I'm writing. If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So the things that I've written to you, the things that I've already said to you, I've written them down so that you'll know what proper behavior in God's house looks like, because that's the place where the living God currently lives which means he's telling them something about what we're talking about right now. You need to make sure that uh, you don't tolerate behavior that is not in line with the behavior that I've communicated to you in this letter. That you're not tolerating sin in God's house. A couple of examples leading up to what he says here. Uh, Chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, the tolerance of heresy He says this to Timothy, as I urge you when I was coming to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, heresy, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Don't tolerate heresy. That's not proper behavior in God's house. Uh, Capital crimes. Capital crimes. Chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. This charge I entrust with you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by you you may wage the good warfare. Warfare where? On the steps of the capital? In the church. You may wage the good warfare, warfare, holding faith in a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have shipwrecked their own faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, who I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Their crime was blasphemy, a capital crime, zero tolerance. This again is, uh, Paul says, I'm writing to you so that you'll know how to behave. I've written these things, past tense. I'm writing these things, uh, what comes after. The term there is what we call a perfect tense. I am writing. 
I mean, everything in this letter is about this, how, uh, how you are to behave so that God's presence will remain among you, so that the lampstand isn't removed. And what again that he writes is all about zero tolerance when it comes to sin in its various forms, heresy, capital crimes, the third one I would call sovereign citizenship. Today people refer to themselves as sovereign citizens. They are a law unto themselves. I think this is picked up in chapter 2, verse 8. I desire that in every place that men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. What they're to be praying for is the government. He's told us that in the prior verses, verses 1 through 3, for kings and all who are in high positions, which ties directly to why certain men are angry or quarreling. They're angry at the government. They're quarreling with the government. And he says those kinds of men are not to be tolerated. These sovereign citizens who don't think they have to submit to the government. We've had people like that in our church. And by God's good grace, they're gone. So again, zero toleration for people like that. Number four, feminazis and female pastors. Verses 9 through 13, likewise also women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Zero tolerance for such things. You see, what it is that Jesus exemplified through his life, we are to imitate by our behavior in the church. And then finally, number five, leading up to, again, those words in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 3, verses 1 through 12 of chapter 3 as it relates to leaders. Make sure that your leaders are qualified and don't tolerate anyone who's not. And so again, being like Jesus, imitating Jesus, our King, means like Jesus, we have zero tolerance for sin in God's house. Which means, guys, when you know that somebody's in sin, you don't cover it up. When you see things, it's not okay to be like, yeah, I knew that things were wrong. Did you say anything to that person? I saw certain things in their life. Did you say anything to that person? No. Why did you tolerate it? Why did you allow it to continue? Because that's what Jesus would have done? Because that's how Jesus lived his life. He saw the things going on in the temple and he's like, you know, I'm thinking about at some point, maybe next month, because I'm kind of busy this month, I'm thinking about maybe setting up a meeting with those guys. Maybe we can start a Bible study. You see, we have this wrong. In very many ways, I think the reason why churches fail, including uh, the, the, as it relates to evangelism and this church, is because uh, we're, we're too tolerant. Even to this day, we're too tolerant of sin. We're too tolerant of sin and we're still not bold enough for Jesus. Because we're worried about hurting people's feelings or people getting angry with us. That wasn't Jesus. And guys, if we're his church, then he's here right now. He's watching us all the time. 
and expecting us to imitate him. The question is, what does he see? Does he see people who are striving to be like him in these ways and the ones that we'll look at uh, later, meaning next week and the following week after that? Or does he see people acting according to what the world says is appropriate behavior? Who are we imitating? The world or Jesus? The final point for today, as a human, Jesus, King Jesus, only fellowshiped with or treated as family those willing to do God's will. Jesus only fellowshiped with or treated as family those willing to do God's will. Now, please make the distinction between associate and fellowship. Jesus would have association with people. But the moment he found that they weren't willing to do what God said, he didn't have any association with those people. And most importantly, he never had fellowship with those people. There was no relationship with Jesus and sinners. Or between Jesus, rather, and sinners. And by sinners, I mean those who wanted to continue in their sin rather uh, than do uh, God's will. He didn't treat them as family, and he didn't hang out with them or call them friends. And the word do there is important. I thought about this this week, and uh, some of you have made the excuse, well, uh, we're continuing to have conversation or uh, fellowship or to hang out with this individual or whatever, and you'll justify it this way. Because they're listening to God's will. The issue is not listening. Are they willing to listen? Are they willing to do? And that's the real easy way, I think, to, uh, to cut to the chase, if you will. When you're talking to someone and uh, they're listening, you say, listen, let's just cut to the chase. Are you willing to do what God says? Are you willing? Or am I just wasting my time? God's word is not like a pixie dust or something that you know. The more you sprinkle it on them, the softer they get, and eventually they'll they'll come around. It's where is your heart? As a free will being that makes your own decisions about your life and your destiny, where are you? Are you right now willing to do God's will? Which, by the way, then needs to be backed up by action, right? Do God's will. I think if you ask the question that way, you'll get a very honest response in most cases. I really do believe that. Are you willing to do? Why do I say that? Because, because I've done that before. And, and that's, that's at the point which people will be like, no, nah, I'm not really. I just don't want to be rude to you, so I'm going to sit here and listen and smile. They don't want to do, then they're not welcome to God and shouldn't be welcome to you either. Mark chapter 8, you know the text, or excuse me, Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, verses 31 through 35. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and brothers. For whoever listens to the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Is that what it says? Whoever does not listens, whoever does the will of God. He is my family, my brother and sister and mother. For whoever does. 
what his family thought about this behavior, what Jesus thought about this behavior, uh, identifying those as friends and family as only those who are willing to do what God said, uh, how his uh, family uh, viewed Jesus or thought about uh, this kind of behavior. Uh, verse uh, 21 And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Jesus is out of his mind. That's how his family viewed that kind of behavior. His family, who were, uh, for the most part, Jews in covenant with God, at least at that particular point in time, who knew God's law, who knew God's will, versus people out in the world, pagans. And these people, people who knew God's will, who were raised in God's will, they think that Jesus' current behavior that we are to imitate, they thought that Jesus' current behavior was crazy. What's the world going to say? If the people in the so-called covenant community think, what are they going to say? What are they going to think? And if you're taking your cues from them, well, hey, I'm worried about what you think, or I want to make sure that I'm imitating you, well, then that's going to affect you. But if I'm only concerned about imitating my king, that's a compliment. I say, you know what? They thought he was crazy for the same kind of behavior. It's a compliment. Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, and uh, we'll end with this. I'll, I'll mention also 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 18, about being separate and coming out from among those uh, unbelievers of the world, not having fellowship with them if we want God to be our God. Uh, but Luke chapter 10 a text that uh, you, you probably haven't considered this way, and yet that is exactly what Jesus is teaching us in uh, this particular parable. The parable that I'm speaking of is the parable of the Good Samaritan. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Here's what we read. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And so, uh, different than the, the, the rich young ruler that uh, we met in Matthew 19, another individual comes up with uh, the same question, this uh, individual being a lawyer. Uh, he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So the two greatest commandments Love the Lord your God and uh, love your neighbor as yourself. But he, meaning the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Uh, Who do I need to love as myself? Jesus replied, here's the parable, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by, on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, what's to be assumed, by the way, that the man that is uh, injured there is a Jew. Two Jewish men have passed him by, but a Samaritan, a non-Jew, 
according to this man's thinking, right, it's a neighbor's determination based on ethnicity. This man is outside of this particular individual's ethnicity. A Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring oil and uh, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three, Jesus asked, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Notice how Jesus changes the question there. Who is my neighbor? No, who proved to be a neighbor? Neighbor by what he does. Not neighbor by who you are based on your ethnicity, but by what you do. Neighbor by your actions, because as we know, our identity is based on what we do. Who proved to be the neighbor? To the man who fell among the robbers. He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. This is how, in other words, and putting that then, or plugging that back into what was said before, uh, do these things and you will live. Do what? Treat as your neighbor. Treat as your brother. Those who do God's will. We are to treat as family those who keep God's law. Which is what this man, according to Exodus 23, 5, this Samaritan who was outside, This Samaritan was doing. He was following God's law as it related to mercy to outsiders. Jesus says the one that you fellowship with, the one that you treat as friends and family, are those again who are willing to do God's will. Not just, well, they claim to be a Christian. No, are they willing to do God's will? Again, Jesus only fellowshiped with or treated his family those types of people. And he's calling us, he's calling us in imitation of him to do the same. A closing contemplation then. Very simple. How are you doing in your imitation of our king? How are you doing? Based on the things that we've talked about today, how are you doing? Really take it to heart. Again, this can't just be theoretical. How are you doing? On that day when you stand in judgment, beloved, this is the kind of question you will be asked. Were you like Jesus? Your life will show one of two things. Imitation of Jesus or imitation of someone else. Who does your life reflect? Are your actions the actions of Jesus? Are your responses the responses of Jesus? Do you care about the things that Jesus cared about? And do you not care about the things that Jesus did not care about? And please don't use the excuse that, well, I'm, I'm just wired differently. This has nothing to do with temperament. This has nothing to do with personality. Every single one of us is expected to respond and to act, no, regardless of our temperament or our personality, to respond and to act like Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we have 
the knowledge to not only imitate our king, but uh, through our imitation of our king to be truly imitators of you, to be imitators of God. And we pray here in this church that we might reach more people for you, that we might make others imitators of your most beloved son, that we would live those kinds of lives and that this current series would be used that way. What we learn would be application unto imitation. Make it so we pray in the name of our great king, in the name of the Lord Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, God's people, please stand. I'm going to slightly change what we did, tweak a little bit here because I think it works better uh, for our blessing uh, what we did last week. And so I'm going to read to you the, uh, the blessing and then I want to do just what we did uh, before, uh, but I'm going to say it this way. And God's people receive that blessing by swearing because that's what we're doing when we say all for King Jesus. We're, we're leaving with that vow that we're going to go into this week and we're going to live our lives all for King Jesus. So when I say, and God's people receive that blessing by swearing, you will all say all for King Jesus, okay? Here we go. Consistent with the Lord's command in number six. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he be favorable to you and give you grace. May he be happy with you and give you peace. And God's people received that blessing by swearing. Amen. You are dismissed. Have a great week.